Okay, First Thessalonians chapter 4. Well, as we come into chapter 4, we will see that the first three chapters were really just the introduction to the letter. The real, the real meat comes in chapter 4 and, and chapter 5, and uh, he's writing to the Thessalonian church that he founded, that the Apostle Paul founded it. Then he had to quickly leave because of the heat from the, uh, the people that were against him and all kinds of authorities. And then he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica and to see what was going on there. And Timothy brought back a great report to the Apostle Paul. So in chapters 1 through 3, writing back to them after hearing this report, he praised this young church for their faithfulness, for their love of the Word of God, for their love for one another, for their love for the Apostle, uh, and their devotion to evangelism as the Word is spreading throughout the community. And as to himself, he has defended himself against the people that were making all kinds of false accusations against him, saying, oh, well, he doesn't really care about people. He comes into town, brings his show in, and then he leaves quickly, and then he expects you to send money to where he is in the next town. And so he has, uh, these were false teachers that were lying, and so he was pleased to see that, from t- heard from Timothy, that they did not believe these false teachers. What's very interesting about chapters 1 through 3 is we know it's a young church full of new believers is there are no words of correction. And for new believers, people who are new to the faith, they need words of correction because we have to, uh, con- we have to really, our brains have to be rewired from the things of the world to the things of God, which I always say to a lot of you, it's just real funny and you know, people will come up to me and they'll say, I was just talking to so-and-so, and they're really off, they're really off, and they're all panicking. And then they kind of look at me and go, was I like that when I came here? I go, oh, you were, you were. And so we're all that way. We, there's a lot of, of rewiring that needs to take place. We have to learn God's Word. That's why I applaud you for being out here uh, tonight. And while churches like in uh, Corinth, which had some immorality issues, or a lot of immorality issues, Galatia had some theological issues, brought uh, the Apostle Paul sorrow and heartache, the Thessalonian church brought him great joy. Now, that doesn't mean that they were perfect. And Timothy's visit uncovered some of the areas that, uh, the, that needed to be addressed the most. So a lot of times people read the Bible and they go, well, it seems kind of random. But you have to understand that these are letters written to churches Sometimes there would be a visit and people would come back and they would say, these are the problems. So he's addressing the problems. Or they would say, these are the questions they're having. And so he would address the questions that they were having. I think nothing helps us understand chapter 4 and 5 better than going back towards the end of chapter 3, verse 10. He says, night and day we're praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect, some of the versions say supply or complete, what is lacking in your faith? So they're not going to grow, right, unless the things that they are lacking are supplied by the Apostle Paul. If it's not supplied by the Word of God, then we're left to what? Our own opinion, our own thinking, and that, how's that working for you? How's that going for you? Not so good, huh? Most of us, most of us it's not. Uh, then jump down to verse 12, chapter 3, verse 12 and 13. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another, to all. So that's something he wants to address, just as we do to you. So he wants them to grow in love, so that he, the Lord, may establish your hearts blameless in 
holiness. So he talked about verse 12, love. Verse 13, holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. We covered that stuff last week. So the Apostle Paul will begin with some teaching, and then he will give some of the Lord's commands. Now, uh, in Bible students, we call this the gospel imperatives or the, the imperatives, the commands of uh, the Bible, and they are to help us grow in our faith. But as we're going to see, there's something else perhaps even more important that they uh, are there for. It's important to understand that these commands are given to believers. He's giving these commands to believers. And really, now, I'm not saying that it's okay to sin if you're not a believer. But, but, and if you're not a believer, we're glad you're here tonight. But these, plan, these commands are given to believers, people that have the Holy Spirit residing within them uh, because they put their trust in Jesus Christ. And they are empowered now because the Holy Spirit re, uh, resides in them to obey the word of the Lord. So as we go through the word of the Lord, as you learn more about God, as you begin to see these changes in your life, it should begin to build a, let's be very careful with our wording here. It should, be care, it should begin to build a quiet confidence in our souls. Not an arrogant confidence, not just thinking it's going to take care of itself, but a very quiet confidence that the Lord has been at work in the life of the believer and by virtue of the promises of the word of God will continue with that work. Now, when we talk about the word of God at work in us, when we talk about the work of the Lord in us, when we talk about the work of the spirit and the word working its way in and through our lives, that does not mean we are passive. When we talk about there's, there's God's sovereignty and there's God's responsibility and there is human responsibility. So we are not passive. It means we are motivated uh, to, by grace to do our part, which is to yield to the word of God and to yield to the Holy Spirit. So as we go through chapter 4 and 5, some of the language seems to me to indicate that the Apostle Paul has taught this to the Thessalonians already. Remember we said last week, it was so odd that he was only there a few weeks and already they were new believers and they were getting into stuff we wouldn't tell people for five or ten years. You know, but but they, were getting, they were getting right into it. I don't know if he knew that the, he would be out of there soon. But, but clearly his instruction was grounded in the word of God. Uh, the apostles had what we would call, um, and I believe that really it's the only way to do ministry, is they had what we would call a scripture-saturated ministry. It was just saturated in the word of God, relying on the power of the word through the person of the Holy Spirit that, to bring the life of Christ into the hearts, uh, and we'll see the behavior and, and the lives of a believer. And so here, I think the Apostle Paul provides for all pastors and leaders an example of how to have a true biblical ministry, how to really uh, you know, serve God's people and serve them well, and it is to complete what is lacking in them. And we all have stuff lacking. 
We all have blind spots. We're blind to our blind spots. And so we need a, a scripture-saturated ministry to help with that. But that doesn't mean we just use the Bible in our teaching. That's why we go through line by line very, very carefully here it is because if you really want to complete what is lacking in people, it requires an undiluted deep dive into the word of God, not more programs. Can I say that again? If we really want to see people be complete in what is lacking in their Christian walk, it requires an undiluted deep dive into the word of God, not more programs. We, we really need to be about God, his word, and his work. Now, before we start chapter four, and yes, I realize I haven't started chapter four yet, um, I have to get on, on the soapbox just for a few minutes. Now, some of you are going, no, 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 no. You normally get on the soapbox about 40 minutes into the thing to keep us awake, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start really early tonight. Because if I don't get on the soapbox early, you might be shocked by some of the stuff in chapters 4 and 5 because this is, and now I'm on the soapbox, so there's going to be some opinion here, that the church in America has often disassociated gospel proclamation from gospel living. Remember, we've said many times before, the, the church in America is obsessed with decisions, whereas the Bible writers were obsessed with discipleship. And so sadly, the Bible-believing church in the United States of America has become known more for what we say and not how we live. And that's terrible, isn't it? You know, uh, uh, surveys show that statistically, particularly among our young people, but really across all age spans, that Christians live almost exactly the same as non-Christians. It's really not, it's not good. Do you know who actually who, who really demonstrate the, the living of biblical values uh, more probably than any other group is probably Orthodox Jewish people. They're, they're, I'm not saying that that's, they have a different thing, they have the same thing that we do, they're not followers of Christ, but, but they take the word of the Lord or the law of God very, very seriously. Now, perhaps it's because most pastors are afraid of being accused in America of legalism. Legalism. One of these days, I'll just do a message on what is legalism and what is not legalism. Legalism is saying that if you live a certain way, God will accept you. That, that, that is what legalism is. Now, many people have that completely wrong, and because they're so afraid of being accused of legalism by people who discount the commands of the Lord, they shy away from saying, this is what the Lord says. This is how the Lord tells us how to live. You're not going to feel that way in a few minutes. So I'm ju just guaranteeing you about that. The truth of the gospel is this. We are saved by grace through faith. Okay? That's it. We are saved by the grace of God through faith in the work, which summarizes the entirety of what Jesus did, the, the, the work of Jesus Christ. In other words, our acceptance by God is not because of our obedience. It is because of the obedience 
the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ. However, we are still obligated and now empowered to try our best with God's help to live out the commands of the Word of God. Now, that automatically, for a lot of Christians, it just, it's just like sandpaper. It's just like the, you know, the teacher back in the days of the old chalkboards, and they would, they would, they would put their nails on it, and they would go, oh, oh, some of you are cringing right now from remembering that. Well, that's because you're old. And so, because, and so you're just cringing just thinking about that. But just let me, let me just state something to you. I am amazed at the number of Christians that say this. We are not under the law and they think because we are not under the law that it means we can ignore the New Testament commands. My question to that is, if that mean, if we can ignore the New Testament commands, was the Holy Spirit lacking for words? Boy, is he like, we can't have the Old Testament be so big and the New Testament so thin. So I have to put a few things in there uh, for people to, to read. No, no, he wasn't wasting his time. He wrote these things because we are not to ignore the New Testament commands because we are now the spirit-empowered people of God. And the church will continue to weaken as long as pastors continue to avoid such things And if you feed a congregation junk food, what would we expect their health to be? Not good, to be absolutely awful. So please, 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 if you know any new believers, and we are blessed to have many in this congregation, if you know any new believers, teach them that the Christian life is a holy life. Do I need to repeat that? Teach them that the Christian life is a holy life and the importance of living a life that is pleasing to God. And that's something we're going to talk a lot about tonight because I fear that in America, we've really lost that. That that holiness has kind of been thrown to the side. Oh, that's legalism. Pleasing God? Well, no, no, no. God's supposed to please me. God's supposed to do do what I want. For Jesus and the apostles, following Jesus was not just about showing up to church. It was not just about praying a prayer. It is and was and will always be a life to be lived, motivated by grace, That's not how we're saved. We're saved by grace through faith. So it is the grace that motivates us to live for God, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. And we learn what is pleasing to God by, as we'll talk about many times tonight, reading the word of God and sitting at the Lord's feet to hear him teach us. Uh, Not to mention that, that we looked, we saw this last Sunday in Matthew, often our lives will speak louder than our words in proclaiming our faith. 
Now, here's the thing we have to remember. I know it's I know it's cool that, you know, quote and different people say different people said it. And, you know, most people put on uh, Augustine or um, Augustine, depending on how you want to say it, you know, preach the gospel if necessary, use words. OK, that means you're supposed to just live nice and and and, you know, you know, help somebody. And, you know, you, you're, you see your neighbor out raking leaves. So you come over with your leaf blower and you blow their lawn and. And they say thank you, and, and, and they're probably not running up your driveway going, hey, tell me about Jesus, man. Tell me about Jesus. Like, it's, we have to speak. We, we have to speak. So, yes, we, have a, we live a life, but, but we have to use words. And it's important to understand that the words we use or the way we live has to be what the Scripture says, not what people say. Very, very important. Very, very important. And I think that's something we get wrong uh, quite often. Let me, let me give you an example. In the book of Acts, uh, one of the mantras for pastors is the apostles are involved in a lot of really important work in, in the church, and, and, they, and they delegate the work out. And they say that we have to devote ourselves to the word of God in prayer. And that is, that is the primary role that a teaching pastor has in a church. That's why, you know, it's tough to reach me in the mornings. You know, and if you are, I'm like, what do you, I'm like, what are you calling me for? Are you dying? I hope so. <laughs> and, you know, Friday mornings, I, I hang on the door, you know, beware of the dog. So my wife knows, don't come in my study, because that's my main Sunday sermon time. Now she's like, I'm just going to go take care of our grandchild. It's a lot safer, okay? But but that's, the, that's what's supposed to happen. The pastor is supposed to devote himself to the, to the word of God in prayer. But many people leave churches. You know why? Because when a pastor devotes himself to the word of God in prayer, they don't like that. Because number one, well, I don't want to be told how to live. And number two, you're the pastor. I want you to devote your life to me. <laughs> that's a, a lot of people, that's what they want. And, and so you have to be very, very careful, very, very careful. And no matter what realm that you are living your life, according to what God says, not the demands of people. All this to say that a genuine faith makes a difference in the way we live. And in chapters 4 and 5, the Apostle Paul is going to go into detail on that. And so tonight, he starts with a massively important subject that is so relevant to our lives. It could have been written yesterday and that is sexual purity. After that, he's going to move into uh, interpersonal relationships. Then he's going to move into the return of the Lord. And then, as we said before, that should affect the way we live our lives now. And then he'll move into some stuff with church life. So why would he, why would he start with sexual morality? Well, uh, because sexual morality or an immorality um, destroys things, doesn't it? It destroys relationships. It destroys the credibility of our faith. Um, it destroys for many, uh, even their faith itself. And, and this is the bottom line. This is the bottom line. I'm just going to say it right now so you can just hear from God. So it's a little shocking. That's why I wanted to get on the soapbox for a minute. Um, sexual immorality is to have no place among the people of God. It is to have no place among the people of God. And we're going to talk about, it's not easy, but we're going to talk about a lot of things regarding that. 
And, and we are to walk with Jesus daily and the Lord's approval should be our passion. Not the things of that, that our body wants or that our mind wants, but the Lord's approval. And, and here's the thing. He never promises that, you, that you're on your own in this. He's not like, hey, you're saved now. <laughs> you better go, go, go do it, man. Good for you. No, he doesn't do that. He's with you every step of the way. So here we go. Finally, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then. So what does it mean when a preacher says finally? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Not much. We might, we might say, and now, that might be better the way we think. Finally then, brethren, so he tells us he's talking to believers, followers of Jesus. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more. Now, this is very interesting, that you should abound more and more. So what does that tell us? That tells us whatever he's going to talk about is a process. More and more. He's not going to say, hey, I hope you're there. No, you're going to abound more and more. But here's the thing. Just because the Lord says we should be growing in something, that does not mean we are complacent. We, we are aggressive in our pursuit of the things of God. Right? And so... so Interesting in church, we're, we're so focused all the time on adding more people. In America, the Bible writers are obsessed with adding more godliness. And so he says here, he says that we're going to, we're going to, he urge you, exhort you in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus, that you should abound more and more just as you received from us. We've already told you this. How you ought to walk, walk is how we live, and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you. Oh, that's legalism. No, no, it's not. There's imperatives. There are commands in the New Testament. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does he do right there? He cites the divine authority of the commands. Now, we are blessed to have many Bible translations. But sometimes I fear even the translators water down the word of God. In verse 1, it says, you should abound. It also says, you ought to walk. Now, to our American ears, doesn't that kind of sound like it might be optional? Doesn't that kind of sound like, hey, it might be a good idea, bro, if you're feeling it one day. If you're not the next, don't worry about it. But to a culture obsessed with personal pleasure and churches that are marketing themselves with everything from God will give you whatever you want or come here, it's really fun, we have to be so careful And once again, here we see the purpose of the Christian life is to please God and not ourselves, and dare I say, to take pleasure in pleasing God. Verse 1 literally says this, Just as you receive from us how it is necessary for you to walk so as to please God. Boy, necessary is a lot different than ought, isn't it? 
Necessary is a lot different than should. While some might say that this is the way to receive the full blessing of God, and I would not deny that. It might not look the way we think it is. That's not the entirety of the, of the story. The Apostle Paul is stressing the necessity of such living. What is he telling us? That such living is mandatory. That such living is not optional for a follower of Jesus. Now you say, I fail all the time. Well, we're, we're talking about the pursuit, doing our part in the pursuit of such living. Why? Um, he says, because the instructions and the commands were given to him that, and that it came from the Lord himself. Now, this is one of the things that's very, very important to understand that the Apostle Paul is very authoritative here. He's actually, in a lot of his writing, he's very authoritative. And I personally believe the teaching of the Word of God should be authoritative. I, I, I can't stand it. when Sometimes I, I hear preachers and I'm just like, just say it, bro, just say it. Come on, man, you can do it, you can do it. And it should be authoritative, but it's not his authority. You don't stand on your own authority. You stand on the authority of the word of God that has come from the Lord Jesus Christ. Our daily walk, you'll see in the writings of the apostle, the way we live in all we do must be our priority. Pleasing the Lord must be our priority. And we are to do it all the way to the finish line. But here's where I don't want you to get discouraged. He said, what? More and more. It's a process. It means that sometimes you're going to do okay, and then maybe have some times when you're not doing quite as okay, and you confess your sins, you get up back on the horse, and you get to it again. And said to you many times, you grew up across the street from a, from a horse farm, said it in a recent sermon that my, the kid I grew up across the street from played on the 1986 World Cup in Berlin, representing the United States in polo. His father told me, I remember a few times I fell, and, he, and I said, oh, I'm such a terrible rider. And he goes, you want to know something? The best riders in this entire world are those who fell the most and got up again the, the most. That's the way we do it. We, we might fall. doesn't mean it's okay to fall. We confess our sin. We ask God to help us, but we get up on the horse again. So how do you get there? You build your life on the word of God. And if you build your life on the word of God, your foundation will be strong, but it will also be empowered by the spirit of God. Now, I want to be careful with something here because some of you might be thinking right now, I got to try harder. I got to try harder. I got to try harder. Maybe that's not what we want to think right now. Let's just put that to the side. I'm not saying you don't try hard. Um, you know, Avis, we try harder. Go get some buttons from them or something like that. But, 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 what I wanna, but what I wanna really tell you to do is instead of just thinking about trying harder is digging deeper. Instead of just trying harder, digger deeping, dig deeper into God's word and knowing him better, which steadies you in the storms of life. Remember Jesus said, build your house on the rock. Because when the storm comes, everybody gets the storm. 
It's not like he's not like, hey, the guy who built this foundation on the rock, he didn't even get the storm. Yeah, his shutters probably got torn off a little bit, a little roof repair or something like that. But the guy who built his house on the sin, what happened to his house? It was just washed downstream. And so we want to build our lives, uh, dig deep in the word of God, which steadies us in the storm. I think a great example of this is in the Old Testament is Jeremiah. He's walking amidst the destruction of Jerusalem. His heart is just grieved and full of pain. And he says this, Lamentations 3, 21 and 22. He says, this I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. What, what is this? Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. That is a man who's taken the time to go deep. He's not trying harder. He's not like, oh, I got to think positive. You know, I think good thoughts. The city's in ruins. Think good thoughts. You know, the city's not in ruins. That's silly. No, he, he is deep in God. Verse three, he, he, the apostle moves into the Lord's teaching on sexual purity. And, uh, you know, their culture, like our culture is becoming, uh, and already there in many places, openly celebrated sexual immorality. Um, he says, verse three, for this is the will of God. Now, that's a common question among Christians, and uh, it's, it's in various places in the word of God. And, and this is God's will for every follower of Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. So when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, to be sanctified is to be set apart by God. Here he's talking about being set apart by God. There's various purposes which God set you apart for. Here it is for holy living. He says, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. So just remember that he's in Corinth, one of the most immoral cities of the Roman Empire. And so he is warning the Thessalonians about sexual purity. Now, Thessalonica did not have the reputation of Corinth for immorality, but it was a seaport city. And if you know anything about seaport cities in, in the ancient world and actually even some parts of, of, of the world today and it's going to go down by the docks or something like that, there was a lot of immorality that, that came with that. Um, but the issue of sexuality is relevant to every culture. And, and, it, and I would say this. I would say that in some sense, it poses a challenge to every single follower of Jesus that I know. Uh, if you're the person that it doesn't pose any of the following that I'm going to talk about, then, then I'd be interested in helping you get out of the house a little bit more. And, and because for some people, it's personal practice. There are people that are having difficulty in the area of sexual purity in, in personal practice. Uh, for others, it is the lifestyle of people that we know and love. And that, that poses a tremendous uh, difficulty for us. Or it's, it's just um, the questions you get from people. People will ask you questions about that. Do you this or, or, or do you believe this or does your church believe this or does your church believe that? And so unless you're living in a, in a, you know, in a cave somewhere and you only come out to Bible study on Wednesday night, you don't talk to anybody when you go in and come out, somehow, somewhere, this question or this, this thing is going to come at you. It, it, it's just a, a constant onslaught of, 
of media. And if you, boy, just look at YouTube. You know, it's like any, anything you do, the, the, the billboards going down the street or just anything on, on, on television. And, and, a, and a, a follower of Jesus has been set apart by God. And we are therefore to abstain from sexual immorality. The idea of that word abstain is to hold oneself off. Another version says you are to cut it off, cut off sexual immorality. It's not like, you know, just like, kind of like well, you know, I'll try my best, whatever. He's like, he's got, you got to get rid of it. Classic example, Joseph, Genesis chapter 39. Young man, teenager, presumably sold into slavery, running away from the advances of his boss's wife. Now, he's all the way down in Egypt. His family doesn't live there. It'd be easy to think, well, well, no one would know. Nobody's watching. And what does he say? He says this. He says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He's a teenager. You know what teenage boys are like? They're like hormone factories, right? <laughs> and, and here he is. And he says, I know, I know it seems like nobody's watching, but I know God's watching. And even if he wasn't watching, it would still be a sin against him. He doesn't want to do it against his boss. He doesn't want to do it against his boss's wife. He doesn't want to do it against his own body. But he's concerned about his sin against God. Now, you think, that is amazing. Well, if you don't know the end of the story, you know what happens? He gets arrested. And he goes to jail. Sometimes you get in trouble for doing the right thing. Not with God. You know, Joseph's a big shot now in heaven. We'll meet him. But, but, but he got arrested. And so here the Apostle Paul stresses the human responsibility of the believer in this situation. And when he says abstain, do you know what that means? He means there's no exceptions. There's no exceptions. Now, the word immorality is pornea. Uh, it's used in a couple different ways in, in the New Testament, uh, a lot of times for fornication, for adultery. Uh, it's also sometimes uh, broadly used for any sexual behavior outside of marriage. Uh, we just covered a few weeks ago Matthew 19, 4 and 5. Jesus talking with the religious leaders, the Pharisees, about divorce. And he said, and, and he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, and then Jesus quotes Genesis 2.24, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So the culture of the Roman Empire was much like ours in that Usually there's two kind of reactions to sexual immorality. One is just indifferent, you know, live and let live, let people do what they want. And, and the other is um, they just praise the practices. And, and so here he's, 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 you know, again, pornea, which, which can be a broad view of, of things outside of sexual practices or behavior outside of marriage or, or fornication or adultery. Um, in, in the Roman Empire, it was, are you ready, ladies? Okay, uh-oh, here we go. It was socially accepted for men to have few ladies on the side. 
You know, it's just a man's way. I mean, that's how, did you ever hear anybody say that? I've heard people say that. It's just a man's way. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's a man's sinful way, yes. Okay, but it's not a man's way. And, and so they could have, you know, they have their wife, and her job was to raise the legitimate kids who would carry on the name and get all the inheritance, and then so they had the girlfriend, someone to talk to, I guess. And then they would even have, you know, the, 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 the cultic temples, and they'd have temple prostitutes, which would be part of the, part of the practice and uh, part of their religion. And it's quite possible, sadly, that some of the Thessalonians had slipped back into this. You know, uh, they, they were converted, they started to hear things from the word of God. They started to change, but, you know, they were on fire for God. And, and all of a sudden, you know, they stopped reading their Bible. They stopped praying. They weren't going to services as often as they were before. And they start getting sloppy, you know. And then somebody comes along and goes, oh, God forgives all sin, past, present, and future. Don't worry about it. And before they know it, their, their, their faith is shipwrecked. Or maybe they never left it. Maybe they were, they were, they were hanging out at the Thessalonian church and they never left those practices. But, but Jesus and the apostles come along and say that, that Christian holiness requires total abstinence of sex outside of marriage. Total. That's it. Now, that doesn't mean, well, I'm married and so that, that I'm cool. I go off with you know, my girlfriend. No, that's not, that's not it. One man, Jesus said it, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So it's important to see the apostles reminding us that we have been sanctified, we have been set apart for what? For God's divine purposes. And any time we allow unholiness into our lives, we, we, we really make it more difficult for those divine purposes to come to fruition. Um, and, and we've said this many times before, for those of you that never heard it, it's always helpful to repeat it. Salvation is an event. At some point in time, you become saved. The Spirit of God comes to live with inside of you, comes inside of you. You are forgiven of your sins. You have eternal life. But sanctification is a process. It begins when you're saved, and it, and it ends when, when, we, when we see the Lord. That doesn't mean it's okay, as we said before. It doesn't mean it's okay to sin but understand that you are becoming more and more like Christ. You say, well, how do I know? <laughs> you care. <laughs> so, so, you know, when somebody comes in to see me and they say, well, this is the problem and the, the, the poor man or woman, you got to pour them into the seat and they're so distraught. <laughs> like, you know, and, and they're thinking, I'm going to hit them. I'm not like, are you kidding me? I'm, I'm not going to hit you, man. You need a Band-Aid and some gauze or something like that. You're, you're killing yourself here. You know, let's confess that sin and let's move on. Let, let, let's move on in holiness. But other people, they're like, yeah, ain't nobody going. You, Pastor, you ain't going to tell me how to live. The Bible ain't going to tell me how to live. Well, that's a bad sign. That's a really bad sign. So your reaction to the sin tells you a lot about where you are in the sanctification process. And even the check you get in your spirit before the sin tells you. You know, every once in a while we'll be watching television and my wife and I look at, look at each other and go, we've got to turn this off. We don't, we don't need to see this. And so, and so you know, these, these things will tell you a lot about yourself and your salvation. So, so sanctification is a process. And for, there's going to be up and down battles with that. And, and that's the reality of it. Um, but it's important for us to realize 
that sex outside of marriage, um, uh, pornography, other various types of things that you know, you know, I don't have to tell you, you know that God would not have for you is a weapon of destruction in Satan's arsenal. And it's a heavy-duty one. I mean, when he comes with that one, he is breaking out the heavy artillery on you. He knows that God has a plan for your life. He knows God has wants to really do things with you. And he knows this is something that the guilt is going to be so heavy for you that you're going to you're just going to take yourself out of it. He just knows if he can get you to, you know, just to just to get started, you'll do the rest and and he's going to take you out of it. Uh, We're foolish to think that we are the only generation where it is so available. Foolish. Um, It's always been that way, and it always will be that way. Now, the delivery system is different. Now it's being delivered to to kids on on cell phones and iPads and stuff like that, so we have to be careful. But but we've said before here, we we talked about it when we were in 1 Corinthians. Listen, if, if you lived in the city of Corinth, and you sent your 12-year-old boy down to the market for some bread, you would say to him, no talking to the prostitutes. Because you would know that just the path down to the market and back, that he would meet some sort of prostitute that would be trying to, trying to get him. I remember when I was in college, remember back before they cleaned up uh, New York City, although it's starting to, it seems like it's starting to get bad again, and, and so I would, uh, when I, I lived in New Jersey and I would go visit my parents when I was in college in New Jersey out on Long Island, sometimes I would take the bus into the Times Square and then I would have to walk down uh, the street to go down to Penn Station. It was about an eight-block walk. I would walk down the middle of the street and I wouldn't be the only one. There'd be all these college kids walking down the middle of the street because we knew what was in lurking on the sides. It would be prostitutes and drug dealers and who knows what else was there? And, and, and we would be afraid. And so we're not the only generation that has faced these things. And again, the, the things like pornography are taking so many people out of effective service for God. I mean, it's just weighing them down. It's like, it's like having a backpack full of bricks and, and, you know, you go to do something for God, and, and, and the other guy's like, who are you? Look at what you do. you got to be kidding me. And so it's awful. So, so staying, saying no, staying away, cutting it out, is what Romans 12.1 says. It's offering your body as a living sacrifice. You're saying, I'm, I'm not going to participate in that. It is a way of submitting. Remember this, this Sunday, we talked about how are you with the authority of Jesus? By saying no to these things, when your body is, is pressing at you, I mean, the human race wouldn't exist if God didn't design bodies to go all the way. And so it's one thing I'm constantly telling young people, remember, that's how God has designed your body. So you can't, you can't flame that fire And this is a way of submitting to the authority of Jesus. Now, Jesus knows the temptation is great. You say, well, how would he know? Well, the Bible tells us that he was tempted in all ways, like we are, yet without sin. Jesus was very famous. Have you noticed one thing about famous guys? Let me me really be crude about this. Have you noticed something about really famous ugly guys? (laughs) They get beautiful girls. 
right? Just something about famous guys and rich guys and, you know, you know, you know, like, hey, turn the water into wine. Great. Let's start a winery, Jesus. Come on. So, 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 you know, he knew what it was like, but, it, but Jesus also knows the power of the gospel, the power of the spirit, the power of the word, and he wants that to, that to work in our lives. Now, so, again, we talked about um, salvation, sanctification. Salvation delivers us. Remember, we said it's an event. It delivers us from the penalty of sin. Our sins are now taken by Jesus on the cross. Um, sanctification, the process of becoming more like Christ, that, that gives us, the, it delivers us from the, the power of sin in the sense of as we grow in grace, sin becomes less and less powerful over us. We can, we can say no. We're indwelling sin becomes less and less of an issue, Lord willing. And then we go to glorification. Hallelujah. The presence of sin will be gone and we won't even think about this stuff anymore. Now, here's an important way to think about this, and I, and I hope that it ruins uh, some of this sin for, for some of you. First uh, Thessalonians 1.9, we covered it already. He said, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, people talking about how they came to Thessalonica, and how you turned to God from idols, to serve the living and true God. It is so important to see uh, sexual immorality as a form of idolatry. And in 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul's talking about some of the practices of people. And in 10.14, he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Break it off. Uh, cut the connection that you have to it. Now, 1 Corinthians 10, 14 is really unfortunate in most of our versions because it's what begins one of those new sections and it, and it comes right after a section about all kinds of sin. And then, and then the people, they break it and we tend to break our system of thought. And after all these different kinds of sin he's talking about, then what does the Lord say? Flee from idolatry. So, so when we flee from sexual sin, we are fleeing from idolatry. Now, as we head into verse 4 and verse 5, the apostle is going to tell us how to abstain. In verse 5, he's going to state it in a positive sense. In verse, uh, verse 4, in a positive sense. Verse 5, in a negative sense. Let's start with verse 4. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel. Now, depending upon what Bible version you have, some of your versions go, my version says wife. So it's probably perhaps the most disputed verse in this entire epistle. Um, we'll talk about that in a second. So you're either going to possess your own vessel, your, uh, your, own, your own body, or your own wife in sanctification and honor. So let's just talk about uh, if, it's, if, if it pertains to our own body. He says here that we should know how to or we should learn how to possess our own vessel, that we should learn how to control our own body, know the things that make us susceptible, know the things that are, that are, that are not good, that, that where we put ourselves in a compromised position. Um, for a lot of people, it's drinking, and, and so, or it's, it's just watching certain things, putting certain things in our eyes, and he says we should know about that. 
Uh, some Bible scholars and some translators think it talks about your wife. So he's saying to these guys, learn how to stay with her and only be intimate with her. I will let the Bible scholars debate this one all they want. I'm fine with either one. <laughs> I'm fine with either one. I think we all need to learn how to control our own bodies. And I think that all of us men who are married men, we are to be one woman men. That's it. One girl for me, her name's Pam. Beginning of story, end of story. That's just the, that's just the way it is. I'm thrilled with that, actually. I don't know if she is, but I'm thrilled. I, I'm thrilled with that. I think she is. She tells me she is. You'll have to find out if she's lying to me or not. Uh, but, 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 but that's, I'm fine with both of those things. Now, some of you say, Oh, but Pastor Jim, you don't understand. You don't understand. Usually when people tell me I don't understand, I understand all too well. <laughs> right? They go, you don't understand. I'm tempted. And I'm like, oh, welcome to the club. <laughs> welcome to the club. See, that's why it's important to learn how to avoid those situations. If you weren't tempted, it wouldn't matter. But if you're tempted, you need to learn to avoid those situations. I love it. I forget what book he said it from. But you know how you read a quote and it sticks with you forever? I always say that. I read books, but it's sentences that change me, not books. Um, and, and I love what Chuck Swindoll says this. He said this. He said, no one remains pure by accident. No one remains pure by accident. I think there's great wisdom in that. And so we must learn when it comes to our bodies to be in control of our bodies, not controlled by our bodies. So overall, the principle is clear. God created sexual intimacy to be practiced and enjoyed in the context of marriage, one man, one woman. Now, if you're married and and you believe that God solely made um, uh, marriage to, to, and, and sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife to just for the sake of having babies, that is an unbiblical view. That is an unbiblical view. And whenever I talk to young men who feel that way and they tell me they're having no more kids, I say, oh, so you're abstaining the rest of your life, huh? And they go like, uh-uh, <laughs> right? So this is something that God uses to bring a couple closer together and even you know, as people age and stuff like that, think things change. But even just just the closeness and the and and you know, you're gonna you're if you're married, you should be hugging your if you're a married man, hugging your wife differently than you hug the sisters in the church. Or perhaps I should say it better this way: you should be hugging the sisters in the church differently than you're hugging your wife. And so we call it the kind of crouched over hug, you know, like, you know, kind of like, hey, buddy, how you doing? <laughs> so and so we want to be really careful of, of, of such things. And every other expression other than with your spouse in mind. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Or body is inconsistent with God's intentions. But Pastor Jim, you don't understand. <laughs> You don't understand. It's difficult. I understand. <laughs> I understand. I understand. Um, this is a very oversimplified statement. So 
For some of you, you're like, ah, that's not entirely true. I understand this is an oversimplified statement. But I have personally found the Christian life to be must to be much harder when I don't want to live it. Makes sense, doesn't it? I have found the Christian life to be much harder when I don't want to live it. I have found it much harder when I am in rebellion to what God says instead of finding crazy, all-out, ridiculous joy in pleasing him. I've told many a young man, guy says, I have a problem with pornography. You know what? Pull the plug on that computer and run outside your house. Don't even worry about a jacket or nothing like that. Run outside your house and feel the glory of God. Know that that is a pleasing thing to God, that you're pleasing God and and enjoy that. Now, um, some people say, well, you know, I'm I'm not married. I understand. I understand. It's it's not always going to be an easy thing. It's... You know, if you talk to married people, they'll say it's not something that gets easier when you when you get, you know, when you get married. Or young people, you think, oh, it gets easier when you get older. Older people are like, I'm not dead yet. <laughs> right? it's not, this is this is this is difficult for 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 everybody. And I'll say this: I just want to say something about single Christians for just a second. Um, without single Christians who have given their lives to self-giving service to God and the body of Christ, the church would die. I'm going to tell you something. Without the single Christians in this church that serve God so incredibly faithfully, this place would be dead in the water. Really dead in the water. And a lot of them, as we've said before, a lot of them are young. A lot of them are young and very, very devoted to serving God. Verse 5 not in passion of lust like Gentiles. Some of your versions say pagans. Some versions say heathens who do not know God. So what is he doing here? Here he's contrasting the sanctification of believers set apart for divine purposes by God and and, and the holiness of the believer, spirit-empowered purity and holiness. He compares them to the passions of non-Christians. And, and as we said that, that before, that giving into such passions are routinely referred to as idolatry, idolatry in the New Testament. I would say Old Testament as well. Or you could say that giving into our passion is a result of our idolatry. That we've just put something in our minds that we have to have it, we have to have it, and then we give into it. So why does the Apostle Paul, why is he saying this stuff? Because the world provides countless opportunities for us to participate. So he says here, those who do not know God. And generally, those who do not know God, not all though. I've met people that, 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 that actually sexual purity is an important thing to them. And, but those who do not know God, they still need to know Christ. Those who do not know God generally don't care or care very little about such things. I mean, it's just not on their radar. It's not on their radar at all. Uh, for many, if not most, sex is for them a means of individual gratification. It can be for some a way to get what they want. 
And sadly, that can be the case in many marriages too. But, but like Jesus, the Apostle Paul raises the bar and he says, followers of Jesus are to be different. Verse 6, he covers, an, uh, covers another aspect of immorality that no one should take advantage of. Interesting. Kind of means that no one should overstep the boundaries of the word of the Lord. No one should take advantage of and defraud or cheat his brother in this matter because, and this is serious, the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also forewarned you and testified. Um. So what is he saying here, that, that you go off with somebody else's wife, you, you defraud a brother, you, you defraud someone, um, you cheat, that, that, that God will judge and provide justice. Now, a lot of people are like, oh, not my Jesus. Well, well, yeah, I guess he, it is. He's right there. You know, when the Apostle Paul in this epistle says the Lord, he's talking about the Lord Jesus. See, sexual sin is is not only against God, it's also against people. In, in a moment, if you will, it, it is... And, and here's, a, here's the thing. Um, um, our own personal holiness is a great gift that we give to one another. It's a gift that I give to you. It's a gift that you give to me. And, and in those moments, what we're doing is we're forgetting the cross we're forgetting pleasing God, and we're just investing and in caring for ourselves. Now, most people in our culture never think of sex this way. They're like, hey, dude, what do you, gosh, come on. It's two consenting adults. That's not how God sees it. That's not how God sees it. John Phillips, a, a, a Bible commentator, says this. God posted a no pressing no trespassing sign and violators will be prosecuted sign over all people. <laughs> so there's a, there's a no trespassing sign. And, and even being consensual, such sexual practices crosses God's boundary line and God doesn't consider it consensual. He, he doesn't, why? Because he didn't consent to it. Verse 7, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, and then he gives us the conclusion, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has often, who has also, sorry, given us his Holy Spirit. Now, let's say real quickly, here in verses 1 through 8, we've already had the Trinity mentioned. He's already talked about God. He's talked about Jesus. And now he's talked about the Holy Spirit. So let's let's just go... Real quickly, for God did not call us to uncleanness. He's called us to holiness. If you're a follower of Jesus, God has called you to holiness. Therefore, verse 8 is so incredibly tough. Therefore, he who rejects this, God's command for what? The call, God's call for holiness, does not reject man. He's like, you're not rejecting what I'm telling you. You're not rejecting what I'm telling you, but God. You're, you're not rejecting the Apostle Paul. You're not rejecting me. He's saying you're rejecting God who's given us the Holy Spirit to help us have victory in this area. So when someone becomes a follower of Jesus, it's because God has called them. We call it the effectual call. You'll hear 
particularly on Sundays, I'm constantly calling, various points in the message, calling people to believe. And then every time I do it, I say, God, please make that call effectual in somebody's life. Make it of effect. Do something with that call. But God, when he calls us, has not called us to be the same as before. Let let that burn into our souls. When God calls us, he has not called us to be the same as before. We are now called into a holy life. God considers us holy in position. All of our sins are forgiven, but we practically still sin, but he wants us to become holy and progressively more holy in practice. God's call is an important teaching in the word of God. God calls us to believe. God calls us to holiness. God calls us to his commands. God initiates the call and we respond to the call as we are called from sin to the Savior. But again, we are not on our own. We are not alone. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus said, when I leave, I will send the comforter. Jesus said, it's better that I leave at the Last Supper. Then he will come. He will come alongside you, the Holy Spirit. He will live inside you. He'll help you live out this life. And yet notice here, and, and this is at odds about what, if, if, if statistics show that the Christian church lives the same as the rest of the unbelieving world of verse 5, here we are at odds with the church in America that is engaging in unholy sexuality. And the Apostle Paul says, when a church does that, when the believers do that, when we do that, we are rejecting God himself. That is heavy. That is heavy. And I pray that thought delivers somebody in this room tonight or multitudes of people that they think about it. The next time they go to that place, they think, I am actively, right now, mentally rejecting God. I'm thumbing my nose at the one on the cross. I pray that that very thought delivers some here tonight, many here tonight, perhaps the entirety of the room here tonight. The word reject is very strong by design. It's not like the Holy Spirit's like, oh, let's just say like, you know, oh, you're kind of dissing God. Oh, you're kind of, or you're kind of not pleasing to him. He says, no, you are rejecting him. And the idea here really is you're, you're rejecting with some sense of finality, in, which, which really is something we see quite often in the church in America it, it seems to indicate that there are many people that are walking around claiming to be Christians, but their behavior reveals it to be a false conversion. This is something we've just dropped this dialogue almost completely in the United States. It is so sad that there are so many false converts in our churches because we're not talking about this kind of stuff. Because somebody's like, well, I, I, I'm going to get through this real quick. You know, husbands and wife, you know, live it up. And the rest of you, you know, well, just wait. Okay, next verse. Um, <laughs> we're not talking about this kind of stuff. This is such 
serious language. He's talking about the rejection of God's will, the rejection of God's call, the rejection of God's word, his spirit, his son dying on the cross. It is the rejection of a life that is pleasing to God for what? For what? For pleasing ourself in a moment. And then you feel like junk afterwards. You know how the evil one works. You deserve this. You deserve this. You deserve this. It could be in any kind of thing. You know, you have a tough day at work. You know what? You come home, eat a half gallon of ice, ice cream. You deserve this. You deserve this. And then afterwards he goes, yeah, some Christian you are. Right? That's what he does. He kicks you down to the curb and then he kicks your teeth in. It's not enough that you're in the curb. It's not enough that you're in the gutter. But now you're going to kick my teeth in too? I don't know about you. I'm so tired of that guy. I'm so tired of him. And that's what he does to people. The fact is the Apostle Paul says, listen, again, you're not rejecting me, but you're rejecting God. That shows me that he knows he's writing the word of the Lord. He's writing this stuff. He's going, listen, hey, it's not me you're rejecting. It's not me. Do I, do I grieve when people in our church disobey God? You better believe I do. Do I grieve when people hide their sin behind stupid, ultra-spiritual language? Oh, I'm not going to keep my commitment because the Lord led me not to? Are you kidding me? Are you really kidding me? Oh, the Lord led me to this. Oh, the Lord led me to that. Does it grieve me? Yes, but I don't take it as a personal rejection. I really don't. I'm saddened for them. I don't pray, hey, you know what, God, you know, thank God I'm not like them. No, I I pray, God, I pray that you would show them that they're rejecting you, that they're putting words in your mouth that, that you never said. That's why the that's that's why the people of God are called to submit to the authority of the word of God written by the Bible writers. To treat sexual sin lightly, to treat any sin lightly is to reject the word of God. It's rejecting God himself. It is making him of no account. And it's also seen here as a sin against the Holy Spirit given to us by Christ to help us walk with Jesus daily. Casualness of sin should be a real, real worry spot for all of us. I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad You know, Jesus told the religious leaders, I'm telling you these things so you can be saved. That's why I'm telling you these things. Casualness about sin shows that that someone may not have yet or has not yet experienced the inward work of the Holy Spirit. And it may actually be possible that you're not yet a Christian. And you can change that tonight. By saying, God, I know there's times in my life when I'm just turning my back to you. And you know what? It doesn't even seem to bother me anymore. And tonight I'm going to turn to you. I'm not going to live with my back to you anymore. I'm begging you, Lord. I'm begging you, Lord. I don't know if you're going to take this thing from me or not, but I know you will walk with me through this thing. And I'm begging you to help me to walk with you as we walk through this thing together. And so turn, turn to God. Put your trust in Jesus. Why? Why is this so important? Because as the Old Testament refers to him as the Spirit of God, 
where the Spirit of the Lord, that's typical Old Testament language, is holy. And sexual immorality is incompatible with holiness. The Holy Spirit is our divine companion given to us to save and to help us walk in the newness of life. Here's the deal. Satan wants to keep you stuck right where you are. And he knows how to get to you. Our culture wants to keep you stuck right where you are and knows how to get to you. But loved ones, Christian, God is transforming you. Not he, not he might, God is transforming you through the work and power of the Holy Spirit brought to you as you pour the word of God into you and then you hold up your responsibility doing your best with God's help to walk in this newness of life. The Holy Spirit brings us to the cross where Jesus Christ died for our sexual immorality and our other sins. And he gives new life, new hope, new power to all who will put their trust in him. Well, let's stand and pray.